Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Episode 93 of Suncast. We ended up getting 100 megawatts under development and control up there in their program. You know, that was the kind of scale we wanted to go for. And it really was a game changer. I remember Excel Energy thinking the whole program would be, you know, 30 or 40 megawatts. And we had to inform them that our little company alone was going to go for 100 plus. This is Suncast. In every battle, there's a front line. On that front line are warriors whose courage and action shape the outcome of the battle. The world is currently engaged in a literal power struggle, a battle in global energy as it evolves from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Suncast is a conversation with solar warriors on the front lines, building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. We learn their secrets to personal and professional growth, market development, and industry insights. And now, join solar industry veteran, Latin America fanatic, and your host, Nico Johnson. Hey, solar warriors! Welcome, welcome, welcome back to Suncast. I am your host, Nico Johnson. If you are a regular listener, man, I am really honored that you're back. You already know that every week, Suncast provides tomorrow's clean tech leaders with insight and ammunition to carry you through your daily battles. Thank you for tuning in. Get ready for your weekly mental tune-up. Are you a new listener? I am equally grateful to have you with us, and I encourage you to check out some of the other amazing interviews with solar leaders like Jigger Shaw, Dan Sugar, Ed Fio. the list goes on. And speaking of past episodes, did you get a chance to check out last week's episode with Stephen Smith from Solvita? We talk about how his company provides customers a path to predictable and effective project execution. And if you've been listening to previous episodes, then you do already know that in episode number 86, I invited you to join the Suncast tribe. If you believe in the value of what Suncast brings to the world, then please check out that episode or head over to mysuncast.com and check out the Become a Member page to learn more. Suncast is a proud partner with Alliant Energy, the innovative new fully ballasted solar tracker that is at home in the harshest environments, helping developers reduce project risk, increase yield, and keep their solar asset clean and productive. And they're still able to compete on price. To learn more about this ballasted tracker and their robotic cleaning solutions, please visit alionenergy.com. That's A-L-I-O-N. And if you'd like an intro, do shoot me an email, nico at mysuncast.com. Today on Suncast, we are going to explore once again the world of solar plus storage in a conversation with a seasoned solar entrepreneur who's turned his sights to what he believes is the logical evolution of our industry. J.W. Postal has had by any measure a successful run as an entrepreneur, not just in the solar industry, but as a co-founder of Main Street Power, he helped build that company to become one of the largest distributed generation players in the U.S., eventually being absorbed into the global giant AES as their first foray into distributed generation back in 2015. He has now turned his sights toward the impending boom of the storage business. And today we gain valuable insight into how this entrepreneur is setting himself apart from the pack. So stay tuned to learn the connection between the Obama campaign, Wall Street, and Main Street power. The fundamental first steps the Main Street 
team took to ensure they were launching with momentum. The keystone decisions that have helped propel his new venture, Nikola Power, to early wins, including some juicy details around their fundraising. And some amazing insights into JW's entrepreneurial journey. Lessons learned, strategic thinking, ways that he entered new markets, stuff that you just don't find in every interview or conversation. Be sure to stick around till the end for a preview of next week's episode with my friend Kyle Cherick. I'll also be doing a special What You Should Know Before You Go episode next week with the Managing Director of Solar Promotion International, a.k.a. The company that puts on the long-running solar show, InterSolar. And hey, if you're going to go to InterSolar North America, July 10th to the 12th, be sure that you don't miss an event that I'm hosting. It's a networking drinks event in San Francisco for the Solar Tribe, along with my friends at Green Power Conferences. If you're working in Latin America or are just LATAM curious about what's just going on down there in Mexico and Argentina and Chile and Brazil and so many other countries, then this is a not-to-miss event of the movers and shakers and action takers that are making projects happen in the Latin American market. And hey, if you're coming up to San Fran from LATAM, this is the place to meet with your LATAM solar tribe. So if you're not already signed up for my mailing list, please be sure to sign up because that's the best way to know about these events and to get the link to know how to sign up. That's over on mysuncast.com. Jump on the mailing list already. All right, Solar Warrior. Thanks again for setting aside this time in your day. I know you're going to enjoy this week's episode of Suncast with serial entrepreneur J.W. Postal. Today on Suncast, we have an innovator, entrepreneur, and solar industry veteran from the great state of Colorado, a co-founder of one of the early successful exits in our industry, Main Street Power. Mr. J.W. Postal now runs a solar plus storage company named Nikola Power. Today, we're going to dig into the foundation of not just his career, but the growth and exit of Main Street, the path to Nikola, and everything in between. JW, welcome to Suncast. Well, thank you for having me. Super excited to chat with you today. And I want to say to our solar warriors out there, this is another example of when I say in the intro, if there's someone you think should be on Suncast, please put me in touch with them. I want to thank Austin Kinzer, who is a newly minted employee at Nikola for raising his hand and saying, hey, I think that our CEO would be a great addition. Little did he know that I had JW in my crosshairs and today is the fateful day that we get the chance to interview. So I'm really grateful for you, Austin, as a listener and for all of you solar warriors who put your hand up and say, hey, can you please consider interviewing me or this person? So keep doing that. Well, JW, as we take a look as we often do, as we take a look back at how you've gotten onto the road of entrepreneurship, I like to think about the early days in your career. And I'll start by asking, what was the catalyst for you leaving your first job and 
How did you know it was time to move on? And maybe take some time to tell us what that role was. Sure. Well, I had had the uh, the same career job for just about 10 years, literally nine of those in the same desk and same office in downtown Denver for a, a wonderful company called AG Edwards, which was an investment advisory firm. And inside that firm, you basically set up your own business, your own practice, if you want to call it that. I had had a partner for the last nine years of that business, and we had had uh, really grown it from scratch to, you know, quite successful. We managed uh, pensions, 401k, high net worth advisory business. It was a wonderful business. And we had thought about uh, the two of us, uh, he was about 20 years older than me, to go out on our own and start our own company and really be independent fiduciary advisors in that space. And uh, in the end, it was not a decision that he was comfortable making. So we ended up splitting up and I, I did, you know, sort of separate from AG Edwards and walk out and start my own company which at age roughly probably 36, 37 at the time, it was a pretty daunting and scary task. The catalyst for it really was I had been doing the same thing in the same place for 10 years. And I kind of thought there might be greener pastures on the other side. And uh, it was a bit, uh, you know, to be honest, a bit naive and a bit uh, rash. Though I had thought about it for years, I'm not sure I had properly planned for it. And A.G. Edwards had turned out to be a wonderful, very stable maybe a little boring, but a wonderful stable home for me. And I threw that all out the window and walked away. And that was Strategies. Yeah, I started my own company called Strategies. Ended up partnering with another gentleman who had been in the space, who was also independent, started off as an office share, and then very quickly turned into us sort of starting our own, merging the companies together into Strategies. It was not a partnership that either of us would do again. It was a bit of a sort of a a rebound relationship, so to speak, after 10 years with one partner and uh, didn't last very long. We had some real big success, but it just was not a partnership. It was a little too volatile and different mindsets of how to run the business. So we had an ironclad uh, legal agreement and he ended up buying me out, which was good. It was August uh, of 2008, as you may recall in the stock market, Mm -hmm. a very volatile time in our country. Amazing. August of 08. Yeah. I ended up selling under my wife's strict guidance uh, for cash, not an annuitized payout of the assets. And so I was sitting on some, you know, reasonable amount of cash and staring at the world going, how do I combine renewables and finance? And this whole new burgeoning world of PPA financing was coming about. But I went on a little uh, interlope to the Obama campaign, which had set up shop here in Denver. I had been uh, heavily involved in Colorado politics for a number of years, and I decided to show up every day at the campaign headquarters and was quickly identified by some of my friends as a you know, semi-grown-up and given you know, responsibilities, no paycheck, but uh, you know, I got to drive dignitaries around, uh, specifically the Beastie Boys, which was very fun, oh, wow. you know, including the uh, Austin Goolsby, who ended up being the president's uh, chief economic advisor. And uh, we just had a, it was incredible run and I played my small part in that history. But at the meantime, on a folding table in that campaign headquarters, I met a couple other entrepreneurs that were putting together a solar company called Main Street Power. Well, it wasn't called anything yet. It was actually, it had no name. The last month of the campaign, I actually was going to this other little dinky office and meeting with these entrepreneurs talking about the future. And that's where we came up with the name of, uh, you know, this was when Wall Street to Main Street was happening and uh, Wall Street had obviously collapsed. And so we came up with the name of Main Street Solar at the time and then Main Street Power stuck a little better. And uh, we ended up forming the company in uh, the fall of 08, right after the election. 
That is exciting and an exciting time. I mentioned in one of our previous chats that you seem not only to move quickly, but to have prescient insight looking around corners to sell your company for cash only in August of 08. I, I'm, I mean, that's less than 60 days from global financial crash, Bear Stearns <laughs> going out of business. I mean, that's amazing. Now you're flush with cash at a time when the solar industry desperately needed it, which is fantastic. And working with folks in the Colorado industry where not just Colorado, but the entire Western region of the U.S. was starting to really rock and roll. About That was about the time that, as I recall, Excel did their first five megawatt project and solar was starting to get a name in Colorado. It wasn't just a California game anymore. So huge props for recognizing that. You guys at Main Street, I remember early in my career going up against some of the projects uh, against Main Street, and it was really uh, impressive how quickly you guys mobilized. And you had mentioned working for you know 100-year-old publicly traded company, A.G. Edwards, that eventually got rolled up into some other companies. But I'm curious your perspective jumping into a life of entrepreneurship out of a 10-year career in kind of a stodgy finance role. How would you contrast life in the two different spaces? And I'm wondering if there were any interesting early road bumps or, or things that you overcame that you consider training ground for you? Yeah. I mean, A.G. Edwards, as I said, was um, it was very stable, though I didn't get a paycheck. So I was 100% commission, which was the first time I did that. I was 28 years old, had a new baby. My wife was a young lawyer. I mean, it was pretty terrifying every day in that setting. And that did train you that you had to pick up the phone, right? I literally started with a stack of index cards and a phone and you just, you know, you dialed till you could get, get somebody to talk to you about investments. And that's how we started the business. So that training was, you know, incredible and teaches me every day how to be an entrepreneur and reminds me every day. But I think the stability, the comfort level that employees had at AG Edwards, that their healthcare, their 401k, their basic benefits, you know, were, were taken care of. You know, so as a startup leader here, you know, that's something that I have pushed for at Main Street and Sunshare and CEC where I was is making sure employees who may not, you know, certainly maybe a half generation younger than I am are going to have a 401k plan that they can save their own money and, and get going. And so the, one of the first things we did here at Nicola Power was start a 401k plan, start a healthcare plan. You know, I think those are really important things, not necessarily for the entrepreneur itself, but to attract talent to your group is to be a real company as quick as you can. And so those are some of the things we did early on that were informed by my life working for a bigger company. The other thing I did really well is I married well. Uh, my wife has been a corporate attorney now with, with a major firm and you know the managing partner of that firm after many years. And it's uh, you know having that stability in a marriage of one person is is stable and the other person takes these you know entrepreneurial risks has worked really well for us. You know, you said earlier that you were a little lucky, and as Seneca says, luck is preparation meeting opportunity. I think that marrying well is also uh, more than luck. It, it, it takes a certain amount of discernment, and I couldn't agree with you more. The ability to have that type of stability when going into an entrepreneurial venture has helped so many entrepreneurs. A number of my close friends who are currently in the throes of entrepreneurship are floated only by the stability, not just of their wife's paycheck, but of the sensibility and emotional support <laughs> that comes along with that. Along that line, you know, you started Main Street as a co-founder. You mentioned some of the folks that you'd met uh, at the caucus meetings. Main Street became one of the largest commercial industrial uh, CNI companies in the U.S. Had a successful seven-year run, and you were focused in particular on sales and biz dev. I mean, again, building on the the skills that you'd honed at AG Edwards. 
I'd love to understand how Main Street Power in particular, because I think this is an important one to talk about the eventual exit, but how did Main Street Power conceptualize and differentiate itself in the market, particularly around execution on specific verticals? And how do you think that contributed to the eventual exit of the company? Yeah, I mean, a couple things. So, I, I mean, I had the, the kind of the pleasure of being a co-founder and then, you know, kind of first employee. And I ran the business development side, finance side of the shop. And, uh, you know, basically lived on an airplane for about four or five years yeah. and uh, hustled our tails off. We were a pretty lightly capitalized organization on the company side. We did have Morgan Stanley behind us on the project side, which was wonderful. In the verticals, you know, we really made an intentional effort to be in that public sector and low-income public sector because we could differentiate, right? And this is 2009, 10, 11, those early years of the solar industry coming out of the crash of 08, the corporate real estate market. So one of our bankers used to joke, I don't want to be the guy that's known to put the solar panels on a circuit city before they went bankrupt. And so we really made a conscious focus on the public sector. We, as I mentioned earlier, we won that city of Denver and Denver Public Schools RFP And that really was the framework for a portfolio of Colorado municipal and governmental projects that then turned into the state of Colorado, Pueblo County, state prisons. And then we morphed into Phoenix Public Schools through Paradise Valley Schools, San Diego Public Schools. But it all started with those first wins. And so it was a very conscious focus on that sector which we felt was a bit underserved, frankly, mm-hmm. by you know, the early stage Sun Edison and some of the local developers. And we differentiated ourselves by coming to the market with captive capital. So we could drop and use Morgan Stanley's name aggressively with public sector entities who, you know, obviously Morgan Stanley and others had done a lot of their debt financing over the years and public bonds and all that kind of market. So that helped a lot as well. How did the Morgan Stanley relationship come about? Well, it actually started with one of our other founders was a group called ICAST, which was a wonderful nonprofit here in Colorado called the International Center for Appropriate and Sustainable Technology. Their founder, Ravi, who's still going and still running that nonprofit, had a relationship with a banker that he had met at Morgan Stanley to do some low-income project finance work. And we basically parlayed that conversation and relationship into a a major credit facility and and sponsor equity facility, well over $100 million. And the goal was to do hundreds of megawatts per year under that kind of structure. So it started literally right after that election of 2008. Myself, two of the other founders, including Ravi, jumped on an airplane and were invited out to go pitch Morgan Stanley in Westchester. We had a sort of an awkward start to the meetings. But, you know, at that time, the solar business and the clarity of a PPA, third-party finance, model was not exactly what it is today. So we actually started whiteboarding and outlining this structure that we thought could all work. And they said, that sounds nice, but uh, we'd like it to be a lot bigger. Could you make it a lot bigger? Could you go back to Colorado and other markets and show us a pipeline of 100 megawatts? And uh, that's what we did. And so we basically came back to them right before Christmas of 2008. And they, they really liked it. And they started putting together a term sheet for a three-year exclusive project finance relationship, which we executed, uh, you know, I think about March of 2009. And so the company was founded in early April 2009. The first employees were hired and we moved into our little Boulder office space in April of 2009. I love it. So you actually focused on procuring the capital so that you could have a captive fund prior to starting the company. I mean, that was the, that was the development strategy of the company. 
Absolutely. And it was, you know, it was intentional. It kind of came with some risks, which uh, ended up being major risks for the company, you know, which was, you know, you had a captive partner, which gave you all the positives, but it also gave you all the negatives, which, you know, you didn't have a lot of flexibility. You didn't have the ability to shop projects, let the market forces drive up returns. And so, you know, it was a strategy. It worked. It made a lot of sense in 08 and 09 as the markets were cratering. Mm-hmm. You know, we ran into the building at that very moment and, you For know, sure. Morgan Stanley was still in business and not running out of the building, <laughs> uh, much like Bear Stearns you mentioned. So it was a great opportunity for us and we capitalized on it. It ended up being a good story. It could have been a lot bigger and better, I think, you know, but you look back and you say, hey, we did what we could with the opportunity we had. You say it could have been a lot bigger and better. I don't know that I would necessarily agree with you because I think that obviously I wasn't in a deal room. I don't know the terms of the acquisition, but just about anybody in our industry would have loved to have been the catalyst, the acquisition focal point for one of the largest IPPs in the world to move into distributed generation, which is in fact why AES bought Main Street Power. It seems to me like that was a very strategic targeted move for AES. And I don't want to spend, obviously, I don't want to spend our entire interview on Main Street, but I do think that it forms it ought to, at least I expect it forms a crux and sort of a pivot point in your direction. It was your first move out of finance into a sort of structured finance with a goal beyond just capital growing capital. Can we talk a bit about the AES acquisition? I'm curious to how much you can talk about. I'd really like to understand why Main Street, if you're privy to how many suitors they had for acquisition, kind of how that went down. Maybe we could spend three or four minutes on that. And in fairness, I was gone by the time it actually went down. I was there at the beginning of the process, uh, hiring the bankers. You know, we were cash light, as I think we most solar companies were. We were a developer with captive project finance, but limited corporate finance. And pipeline was the key, right? So the more scale around the country and the globe you had a pipeline that could be project financed, you could sort of pre-sell that for corporate capital. It was a relatively light staff. I think the biggest we got was maybe 32 people, 34 people. I think the impetus was, it, you know, in order to help those original shareholders, help the executive team take some risk off the table, bringing in a major capital partner on the corporate side made a lot of sense. So I don't know how many folks AES was working with. We did have a good investment banker that, you know, certainly shopped the deal out to folks you know, like any early stage deal, there was a lot of cleanup of the original cap tables and all that, but ended up being a very good day for all the investors, all the senior executives for sure. I think I was still one of the larger shareholders, even though I had previously left. And so it was a good day for me in terms of uh, paying for some kids' college and Indeed. mortgages and all those things you got to do. I mean, it wasn't a life-changing amount of money, but it was it was meaningful. And certainly, you know, I put a lot of effort into that building that company. So I was yeah. proud of that exit. I would have liked to see it be a little, you know, different, but that wasn't at the helm. So that's okay. But again, I think, uh, as you said, yeah, a lot of positives and uh, proud of that moment. I think AES was definitely looking to get into distributed solar and needed a platform to do that. And, and Main Street offered them a platform of financing expertise, in-house engineering, in-house project finance, and a good resume of municipal governmental projects in multiple countries, Canada, Caribbean. U.S. that, you know, multiple states, heavy Massachusetts, heavy Colorado, heavy California, that that all made a lot of sense. Yeah, very cool. We could spend a lot of time on Main Street, but your current venture is probably a lot more interesting. In between Main Street and now, I was just looking at some of your career trajectory. 
you, I'm going to say, was more than dabbled. You were instrumental in some of the early companies fostering community solar. One of the cool things that you said in an interview was the concept that community solar represents the fourth vertical. I'd love to hear from your perspective, the transition between Main Street and Nicola. Does anything particular stand out? And as well, maybe we'll dig into community solar as particular moments of clarity, perspective or pivots that helped you get to where you are today? Yeah. So, I mean, when I left, it was a pretty devastating departure. Uh, we'll just leave it at that. But it was, <laughs> uh, it was my baby that I was leaving behind. And I was I had been in this sort of unstable company to some extent from a cash flow perspective. And so at the time, my wife and I were craving sort of stability. So it's not big in public on my resume, but I took a year and I ended up working for a very stable construction company that had built some of my solar projects at Main Street, over 10 megawatts of my projects. But they really were the C and an EPC, very solid company, you know, built big hotels, beautiful historical restoration. But I was a fish out of water, right? I mean, my first day I went through safety training for a construction company. And I'm, you know, I was a developer and a finance guy. I didn't own boots. <laughs> and so we still joke with my construction buddies that, you know, I had to go buy boots and I had to wear my yeah. helmet and my, my PRE. And all. That informed me that I needed to go out and hustle for work. And so one of the people I was pitching was a former colleague of mine from Main Street who was now just starting in community solar. And so I pitched him on the idea of us building it for him. And mm-hmm. he liked the idea but pretty quickly, he introduced me to his, his boss and his boss said, you know, why don't you just come run this for us right. and be, you know, kind of be my right-hand man. So that was Sunshare. You know, I leaped at the opportunity. It was a rough year just in the pure construction business. I wasn't particularly happy. I took the leap. I think I was employee four in a new company that just moved to Denver from Colorado Springs. And we had a grand total of one megawatt in the ground. And we had some awards from Excel for their latest program. And my job was to get those subscribed, financed, and built ASAP, literally ASAP, like as fast as humanly possible. And so it was a great opportunity, great experience, truly like restarting. And one of my colleagues, you know, had worked with me at Main Street. So, you know, we, we basically were like, let's do this the right way. Let's, let's figure out all the things we could have done differently at Main Street and, and do them here, both from a hiring perspective and a execution, communication perspective. And we really tried most days to do that. And I think we had an incredible run for a while. And, you know, I think you mentioned earlier, you know, Minnesota. I mean, we went from sitting on the beach for a quick vacation. And next thing I know, I was on a plane to Minnesota. We ended up getting 100 megawatts under development and control up there in their program. And, you know, that was the kind of scale we wanted to go for. And it really was a game changer. I remember Excel Energy thinking the whole program would be you know, 30 or 40 megawatts. And we had to inform them that, you know, our little company alone was going to go for a hundred plus. One of the things that I had marveled at in our conversation earlier as the COO responsible for basically operationalizing, figuring out how to expand into new territories, was it seemed very similar to how you guys had expanded into other states with Main Street. And I think that success leaves clues. One of the things I wanted to dig into here was if you would talk a bit about the strategy behind how you opened up Minnesota. I was unaware of the connection one-to-one with kind of the overarching structure, Excel and Excel. Uh, So that certainly probably had something to do with it. But of all the states that you could have chosen for SunShares, you're based in Colorado, you've got some success. Why did Minnesota open up? And then how did you attack early to make sure that you secured the early wins? Yeah, I mean, it really, at the time, it was a three-state market. 
it was Colorado, Massachusetts, and Minnesota was starting. And, you know, we really felt like let's go explore Minnesota, partly because at the time when I was at SunShare, our top competitor, CEC, had made a move to Massachusetts. And so we thought, well, let's take a look at Minnesota. And, you know, the way I look at these markets, a market is a place that people live and work. There's personalities, there's politics, there's local players, there's local winners, there's local losers, and you got to get in and get local quick. And that was, you know, I'm an old political hack, and that informed career of running political campaigns is kind of how I've always approached solar. It's kind of unique, but get local, get real, hire local talent as quick and fast as you can. And in our example, we went up to Minnesota. I had some good old friend at Mortensen Construction, and he took my call and I said, here's what I want to do. He goes, I love it. Let's do it. And we just started building an idea and they were incredible. I mean, they just supported us from the very beginning. But really what we did is I went and I did a, what I would call a political road trip. I met with the guys that wrote the legislation. So there's a, there was a nonprofit called Fresh Energy where their top guy helped write the legislation. I was like, well, who else should I meet? He's like, you know, pointed out all these people and I'm like, oh, I'm already meeting with him, him and him. We ended up hiring three or four of those early folks very quickly within weeks. In August, we struck that fast. And then in early September, we went up and did a a media blitz about what we were doing. And we just laid it out and said, this is what we're going to go for. And then it was a land grab campaign. I literally emptied my Denver office and we had a bunch of local land guys, one guy who was a state rep up in rural Minnesota, and he ran my field group. And we went and knocked on farmers' doors and the farmers' union and talked to local county commissioners and figured out where land would be appropriate in that community. And we were able to, you know, really grasp a, a lot of early land sites. You know, we were competing against some big companies at the time, but it was a very grassroots, bold sort of political style effort. What I used to joke like Battlestar Galactica, a ragtag fugitive force of, of rebels <laughs> going out there and just <laughs> grabbing sites and You know, we didn't have a corporate structure. I mean, it was Mm -hmm. me and a couple of volunteers and interns and and we just made it happen. You know, that was kind of what we did. So it worked. It worked really well for a while. And then it had a different ending than I would have loved. And then it didn't. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as in everything, there's always transition. You have had a successful track record of helping start companies. It seems many times you choose well, or or certainly it would seem choose well co-founders and you help early stage companies scale quickly. I, having had a couple of chats with you now, can see how that is translated to your current venture, which is called Nikola Power. Nikola Power, obviously named after Nikola Tesla. We like to say we're the first name in Tesla. <laughs> Indeed. Could you give us a quick elevator pitch? What is Nikola Power focused on? Where are you different in the market? Tell me a bit about the narrative that informed your transition away from what we were just discussing, which was helping community solar scale to really looking at what's preventing solar from scaling at its core. So first and foremost, almost two years ago now, I was sitting on my couch midday watching a TV show called Ray Donovan going, what's next? You know, really was trying to figure out, okay, I think I really want to finally start my own deal, my own company. How do I differentiate from every other solar guy with a spreadsheet who's got a good resume? and hustling to go win deals. And I had been approached actually by the first CFO of Main Street, a a gentleman named Art Hall, who had gotten into energy storage in 14 and 15. It was a little early. He had approached me then. I chose the path to community solar. But he kept hounding me and hounding me to join him. And he had some professors that had some patented technology. 
and they just didn't have the right leadership team. You know, come be the CEO, JW, come be the CEO. And I was like, it's, it just doesn't feel right. But in 17, sitting on that couch, I started to do what I do, which is kind of look around the corner and see that energy storage was this great differentiator. And it was also this next great frontier of the renewable space. And that in order to really make this transition from, you know, whether it's 1% of generation or a 30% RPS or even a 50% RPS, the only way to really make that leap to 100% renewables, which is what, you know, I live for every day, is energy storage. That ability, like Bill Gates talks about it, of the ability to store that intermittent power that we all know about from wind and solar in a box and then deliver it to customers or to the grid when we need it and when we want it, but it's clean, renewable power in that box is the game changer. And so I really, in about between February 1st and March 1st, I just did nothing but read every article I could on energy storage. I set up a couple coffees with the professors. I reached out to my old friend. He had sadly died in a car accident and the professors took my call and they had lunch with me a couple different times, and we started exploring different ideas about what they had, where they were headed, where they thought the industry was. And it became pretty apparent that, you know, they were at a little bit of a different stage in life. They were closer to retirement or in retirement. And what they were really looking to do was potentially partner with me. You know, so I went back home and chatted with my wife, and she said, "Is do you want partners? Is that what you want to do? And I said, you know, what I really want to do is, is buy their technology, buy their remnants of what they have and see if I can run this out of Denver because they were based in Colorado Springs. So I went back to the next lunch with a proposal. They bought it. They said, yes, we'd love to do that. We believe you're the right business guy. And so I basically laid out a term sheet to buy four patents that they had, as well as the remnants of a, an entire electric vehicle company that they had called American Electric Vehicles which was a precursor to Tesla. They had a wonderful sports car, a dune buggy, and a really cool e-shuttle 21-foot bus. So I ended up writing them a check, and it took till about August to get all that under control. But I, I bought all those assets and brought them under new ownership under Nikola. We were really excited to do it. And I think that is what differentiates us, is that we're not just a development shop. We're not just a couple of folks out hunting for projects. We are trying to take those patented algorithms and turn them into software to better manage battery systems. So the patents come from the University of Colorado Advanced Battery Test Center. Dr. Gregory Plett wrote them. They come out of the electric vehicle space, which is a really critical area of how do you better predict what a lithium-ion battery will do under different applications. So understanding the state of health, state of charge of a lithium-ion battery is the critical piece to understanding how do you make economic decisions with a battery, how do you make trading decisions with a battery. And so that's really what our mission is, is to have two sides to the business. This one side is software technology, where we are an operator of assets using our tools eventually. The other side is instead of just trying to sell my software to other solar developers, I'm actually going out and hunting for projects. And I do that in about nine states plus the Caribbean. And I think that really separates us. 
And you've built a project development team around it. Is it a lightweight project development team? How are you approaching that? I mean, how do you go out and build, develop your own projects? Yeah, we hired a couple, one uh, X Main Street BD guy that I've known for years, and he'd been in the water business after leaving Main Street, and we'd stayed, you know, relatively in touch. And so he's on the team as a co-founder and an early employee, Ben McConaughey, and he's fantastic. So he runs the BD team, and then we have a you know bunch of what I would call analysts and junior solar folks who really haven't been in the industry yet, but Ben and I are, are sort of training them and, and helping them think about the industry, but they're dynamos, right? They're young, aggressive hunters, smart people who know how to run a spreadsheet. And, and then we added two engineers to the development team that are really the brains of the operation, so to speak. And they have their master's degrees and their PhDs in battery system and energy system design. And so they are both running the development you know, analysis as well as the product creation for the company. So we're really excited to have them on board. I think everyone listening is going to want to try to create analogs. It sounds to me like probably the nearest analog as we've discussed this offline and then I'm listening to it again now, an early version of Greensmith, right? I mean, Greensmith now at Wurzela is a different animal, but this sounds like what Greensmith in its infancy longed to be, right? Create your own software, be a hardware integrator. Exactly. And we don't necessarily want to be a physical integrator. Mm-hmm. I think that's where maybe the, the model Greensmith had didn't quite work with larger EPCs maybe as well. So we really want to be a developer, operator, financier, asset operator for the long term. So pulling those benefits of what Main Street did in managing those assets for Morgan Stanley for a long time. It's a boring business, but it's a annuitized long-term piece of the revenue stream that's really nice to, to work on. And most financial institutions actually don't want to operate the asset. They want to own the asset for tax and sponsored equity purposes. So it's really a nice compliment to them. But yeah, I would think Greensmith is, a, is, a, is part of the model, STEM, Green Charge. But I think we add to that by being a true developer and not just a developer of storage projects, which are still relatively rare, but a real you know, hunter and gatherer of solar plus storage and creating solar plus storage opportunities where they may not have been before. So we compete and talk to everybody about solar. Well, now we're talking about storage as well. So it's much, that's very similar to what Tesla does you know, on a larger scale operation. Well, we'll come back to that. I want to take a brief segue here into a game I like to call hot or hype. I'll (laughs) name a specific market or topic and you'll spend 30 or 60 seconds on whether or not you think it's hot or hype and why. So the first question in hot or hype, microgrids as a core part of the future of our grid, hot or hype? I would say hot, but there's a lot of hype behind it as well. (laughs) So definitely a lot of conversations. It's in the hot category. Yeah. Where would you segment out the hype in microgrids? What, for example, is uh, something that's pure hype and not part of the conversation? Well, sadly, uh, you know, Puerto Rico, you know, right, you have a great opportunity to make the whole island microgrids. And I think there's just a lot of hype and not a lot of real action right now. Mm. And part of that's political, part of that's uh, legacy historical problems with PREPA and with the governing bodies. But never before have we presented such a perfect case to actually implement microgrids and rebuild that PREPA grid in a modern way. Mm -hmm. And yet it's just not happening. Great example. We'll move to the next one. I think a lot of our hotter hype, you're going to have a particular uh, foundational expertise uh, to answer on. Uh, We'll see about all of them. But the next one for sure ties in well, I think, with what you guys are trying to achieve. So I'd love your answer. Hotter hype, the nexus of renewables and the electrification of the automobile industry. 
Yeah, I mean, this is uh, definitely hot. And again, hot globally, more than the US in some ways. But what you're seeing with the dramatic price drops in lithium ion technology is driven by the electrification that Tesla started. And now, you know, every major automobile company has a much bigger fleet of electric vehicles. So that is tying that together. The lower those prices go, the more dramatic you'll see on the stationary side, energy storage projects moving. You know, we have the remnants of this old electric vehicle company, which also is getting a lot of attention. And we have an e-shuttle that I think could be very exciting to the marketplace. So I think that this is truly a hot area. Mm -hmm. Still early, which is interesting. But you're also seeing municipalities now put stationary solar and storage on top of their mobile electric fleets for buses, school buses, city buses. And that's the future. It's hot, but it's still early hot. Next question, hotter hype, blockchain as it relates to energy. This one, I think, actually is a little bit more hype, partly due to the regulatory issues related to it. You know, I ran into a billionaire recently who said, yeah, I'm going to start a company and what we're going to do is we're going to sell energy from one customer to the next via blockchain. And I'm like, and he hadn't thought about solar, he hadn't thought about all the regulatory hurdles, the, you know, and I just thought, wow, that's hype, right? And and so, obviously, a blockchain is, is happening in certain markets. And it's moving probably faster than I'm aware of, but I still think there's a little bit of hype in terms of using blockchain to displace the utilities. You look at what's happening in California with the community aggregation and that model, it will happen there probably faster than the rest of the country. And so pretty quickly, if you ask me this question in six months, probably it goes to early hot versus hype. But I think today it's still a little bit of hype. I love it. Eventually, I'll do another recap of hot or hype, and it'll for sure have a clip where you say... I ran into a billionaire recently. I love it. That's fantastic. Never has that been said yeah. on Suncast before. You, you, can, you can wear that badge. Okay. Hot or hype, solar plus storage, your bailiwick, is ready for prime time. Uh, yeah, we're really close. I mean, we are, we're, we're not, it's, uh, the, the pot is almost boiling. Uh-huh. The market is maturing and being getting ready. Right now, you know, storage alone doesn't quite pencil in most markets without some sort of S-chip type subsidy or smart program subsidy like Massachusetts. So it's still early, but it is real, it's subsidive, and it's a game changer, and it's uh, getting hot quickly. So speaking of getting hot quickly, one of the things that I've mentioned a couple of times here is you have an uncanny ability looking around corners to quickly mobilize, raise funding, and jump out of the gates with a well-capitalized team to attack a market. Can we talk a little bit about how you've been able to afford in the last 18 months to build a team that has knocked down some interesting early projects and you've well capitalized the company enough to be able to go and get these patents, et cetera. How did you go about the funding of the company and what were some of the keystone decisions that you made that you feel like gave you an advantage early on? Yeah. I mean, the first and foremost keystone decision was to decide not just to be a developer, right? To go try to get these patents and get this technology under control. You know, if you look on a continuum of the far left, I thought maybe it's window dressing, you know, simple marketing advantage, a little bit of differentiation as I talk about the company, but maximum, maybe I have game changing patents here. And the more I looked at it, it was somewhere in between, but leaning a little bit more towards, you know, we really are, we're onto something that could be a better way to look at, you know, storage assets. And so that was number one. We did that consciously. And then what we had when we did that, we had value. So a lot of developers, right, they live off the first kill. And we decided that we were actually going to raise money off the technology 
which allowed me to surround myself with technical talent, which I'm not, so I'm not an engineer. And so that was a conscious decision we made. It was a bit terrifying. We went, you know, from my dining room table starting basically March 1. We stayed at my dining room table through Christmas. And it was, an, it was some scary days. I mean, we had no money, no revenue, but we did set ourselves on a path of raising capital. By the time we actually got the patents under control and we could go out to the market, it was late summer, August of 17. And we uh, tried one path with a local accelerator group and that didn't quite work. So we pivoted and we went to a new group with a kind of a new deck and we launched that right around Labor Day. And we were able to raise the million five from 13 angel investors in about 60 days. And so that allowed us to hire the staff, recruit some technical staff and get some real, you know, little office space. You know, those things just changed the course of the company that much. I basically gave up, you know, 26, 27% of the company in order to do that. But I think it was a great thing to do. And late in that part process, we actually, a bunch of institutional investors started hearing about us and hearing about the team. We came in second place in the Denver startup competition. And all of a sudden there was this momentum for, well, we want to, we want in, we want in on this round. And there just wasn't enough to give away. So the good news is I have a group of teed up institutional investors, hopefully to come back you know, next year and see us and, and, and take us to that next level. And that's pretty exciting. That is fantastic. What a great place to be as an early startup. Was that your series A? I always called it a seed round, but my lawyer would tell you it was actually a, a seed A round, but it was our right. first round. So. Yeah, your first round out of the gate was to skip seed, right? Yeah, we didn't do the friends and family. I, I funded the company, my wife and I, for the first year. Mm-hmm. So nobody took a salary for eight or nine months. I bought lunches and we housed it out of my dining room table, but we funded it and bought all the patents individually and then put all that into the company. Frankly, it takes a lot of balls to do that. It takes a lot of gumption and conviction for where you want to go and, and being able to see where you can take this technology. And, you know, that's born out of the, I mean, that's a harvest of the hard work that's gone into a decade of leadership in our industry. So commend you on that. I've said several times in this interview that you have ability to kind of look around corners and this is one of those examples. I mean, that's just fantastic to hear a success story like this of raising money that fast and, uh, and creating momentum. I love the idea that being more than a developer is getting some sort of technology or IP on your side, that you raised money off of that IP, not off of the raw talent of your team, the pure development capabilities of your team, if you will. But as someone who's invested in technology and who is taking a risk around leveraging that IP and that investment, you clearly have something in mind around the corner. So I'd love to, and I always ask, what corners are you looking around? What do you see as the next frontier market, so to speak, regarding solar becoming a standard and not an ancillary service in the marketplace? Yeah, I mean, the interesting part in our space is most of the pure play energy management system, peak shaving type software companies have actually already gone through a a major strategic merger or acquisition. There's an opportunity for Nikola to gain market share. I think 70 or 75% of storage projects are coming from the solar business right now. And so my 10 years of networking and experience in that space, you know, is just leading to great opportunities as we build out our BD efforts around the country. And so I think we have some unique advantages that put us in a great spot as energy storage goes from nascent to warm to hot, you know, we are rising with that rising ocean and it's really an exciting time for us. You know, I've been looking around that corner. Some of it's luck. 
Some of it is we're making our luck, as you said. And so I think it's the right time, right place. And we're going to take advantage of it because we're in the game. And it's, a, you know, we got the right partners behind us and the, the right experiences to uh, execute right now. I hear you. And I can see that it's a bit of a technology play more than just a pure development. I'm curious if you see energy trading markets as particularly uh, interesting. You want to own these assets. You want to be able to deploy energy. My assumption, therefore, is that you want to play at a nodal level. You want to be able to play at more of an energy pricing arbitrage level. And I'd say like at the level of playing the game of a stem or green charge and they're not necessarily in the core business of demand response, but in the ancillary business, which is really the greater business. I'm curious if you'd be willing to speak to that or if we're getting into your secret sauce. Sure. I mean, that's, that's looking around the corner. So we always talk about three products. You know, our third product really is an idea to manage fleets of batteries uh, around the globe instantaneously in an ox center that allows us to do arbitrage, do frequency regulation, demand response. You know, my thought is actually not necessarily to be the owner of these assets, but to be the operator of these assets. And the difference there is, you know, balance sheet and staffing needed to actually exercise the structured finance to own all these is very capital intensive. And in today's environment, there's a lot more capital chasing projects than there was in in 09 and, and 10 when I got into solar. And so I think the timing is actually really good to be nimble, uh, creative, but not necessarily be a permanent owner with my own capital, but to be part of the ownership structure, probably through a royalty and operations model than a full ownership model, which can be very challenging from a tax equity position for a company my size. So I think that's a better model. But the, the technology side, you know, really does become a, a trading platform. Using our patented uh, state of health, state of charge information, we are able to now make better, more granular level decisions about the assets. You know, battery systems tend to have a very strict cycle life and, and warranty time. Well, if our professor's patents can show an extension of cycle life, uh, that could be very meaningful to the industry. So we're really proving that out. You know, if you can get a battery to go from 10 to 12 years, I mean, that's a 20% extension in cycle life. I mean, that can be very meaningful to your OPEX. And there, and then you can price your next project more aggressively, potentially on your CapEx. And so you have a double whammy of, of benefits if we can prove out all this technology. So those are the kind of things we work on every day. And we're creating products to get those out into the market. And, and I think we're on the right path. I think there is a lot of opportunity in this space. And it relies on companies like Nikola Power creating opportunity, creating change, bringing technology innovators, bringing folks that think around technology like your co-founder, Evan Hung, to say, how can we apply what we know about software and product market fit to the way that software impacts energy storage and, and energy deployment moving forward? We could do a whole other podcast on that. I'd like to take some time now to kind of turn the corner and talk a bit about lessons learned as we move into a segment I call learning legacy and leadership. What advice would you give yourself 10 years ago? You guys are starting Main Street Power. If you go back in time, you're sitting at that table at the Democratic office. You're thinking about how to help Barack Obama, but you're also thinking into the future about what became Main Street Power. What would you have done differently? Yeah, I mean, I think the education and the thinking about the, the financial structuring needed to be bigger and faster. I've heard stories that Jigger Shaw literally you know, created a PPA in his graduate school environment. We took about a year, most of 09, 
really was creating, you know, the, the models and the structures. And I wish we had had those one year earlier, right? Mm-hmm. And we really were comfortable. You know, I think the other part is when you found a company, it's like a ba- being a basketball GM or a little league coach GM, right? You're picking your players and you don't need three first basements. And, you know, I think that was one of the pieces, you know, I was sort of picked for the team and added to a team and I didn't build the team from scratch like I am now at Nicola. And so I think one of the other pieces of advice is really slow it down, think about the players and the, and the roles and the skill sets and the complementary pieces and who can do what and who wants to do what. And that's a much better way to build a company than, you know, just your buddies that you drink beer with and talk about. If you all do the same thing, you're not going to be very successful. And it's sometimes hard, right? I mean, you build a company with people that aren't your best friends, but they are complementary. I mean, I didn't, Evan and I worked together, but we didn't really know each other. And now he is, you know, intimate to my life and my business, and he's my co-founder. But people always ask me from my former company, why Evan? And I'm like, because he compliments me, right? He brings skills that I didn't have. Same with Ben. That's the way to start a company, I think. We'll see if I'm right <laughs> now doing it myself. But I think about that because I do coach youth baseball. Is like, you know, I don't need three first basements. I don't need three home run hitters. I need a whole team that can do different things. And so that's really what I've intentionally built here at Nicola is folks that complement each other. I love that answer. It's been a long time. One of the questions I used to ask when I was really focused on LATAM where football means a round ball that now on the world stage is uh, where we're seeing World Cup. I used to ask, hey, if you were the GM of a football team and think about it that way, who's your first player? You know, think, then I like to understand how do you think about the first player on your team as you're building a company in that regard, right? Are you looking for a wing? Are you looking for a goalie? Are you looking for a midfielder? And it's an apropos analogy. I love the baseball analogy as well. You're not looking for all first basemen. What were some of the key lessons or takeaways from the most important mentors in your life or career? Yeah, you know, it's interesting for somebody who's as old as I am. I'm now 50 years old. I haven't had the classic mentors that I wish I had. And so I actually go out of my way to be a mentor to colleagues and, and friends and, and uh, former staff and really pride myself on helping guide people through that career path, which is never easy in this modern world. But my best mentors in some ways been peers and colleagues that I didn't always get along with, but I've learned a lot from. So as I mentioned at A.G. Edwards, I had a partner who was about 20 years older than me, polar opposite politically, but a great person, a smart guy, who taught me tremendously how to think and challenge my conventional wisdom and really helped me be a professional investment professional, which was not easy. I mean, I had, I had started from scratch in that business and he really made me a talented professional fiduciary advisor. I thank him for that. We didn't part as best friends and we didn't come into it as best friends, but he would be the closest, I would say, to a mentor in life. And then my father-in-law and my own father, but my father-in-law is one of those folks, he's a professor of music and just, you know, happy spirit, skiing and fishing still at 86 years old and uh, has been a guiding force in my life. I met my wife when I was 19 or 20 and he's been uh, just a force of do the right thing, work hard, wake up early and prepare and you'll win the day. And he's been a great mentor in that. My father is a professor of linguistics. So he was always the guy that would do the detailed analysis and the detailed work. And he challenged me to not be light on substance. And to this day, if you get in a political argument with him, he'll have researched four or five articles and highlighted them. 
And so he challenges me every day. Again, I don't agree with him on almost anything politically, but we, uh, we have a wonderful relationship of shared, I think, respect for each other. And uh, that's really important. So he's been a great force in my life as well. My mom, who's passed away, was uh, a Zen Buddhist monk of all things and uh, taught me a different way to look at the world. She really was a serene, beautiful teacher of a more peaceful way to go through life and not take yourself so seriously, but take your work seriously and make your work have value and meaning to the world, not just to yourself and your pocketbook. And those are incredible lessons for everybody. And so, you know, I could have spent my life making money at investments, but I decided to combine that skill of finance with solar, which has always been my passion. I built my first solar house with my mom in sixth grade science class. And so I do have to credit her with the start of my solar journey. So she's been an incredible force for me over the years. Very cool. Very cool. Well, it sounds like you come from a long line of professors, which leads me to believe that you've probably had a lot of books around growing up. I believe that leaders are readers. And as I mentioned before, success leaves clues. I'd love to know what's the book that you have given away the most and why? So my favorite novel of all time is Soldier of the Great War by Mark Halperin. It's a story of beauty and war. It's a look back story from an 85-year-old former professor of aesthetics in Italy telling the story of his life to a young, uneducated Italian kid as they run for a bus and miss the bus mm. uh, in rural Italy. And it's one of the greatest stories. It's about World War I and love and life. And so a must-read novel for everybody in my life. I've given it to nephews and cousins and colleagues. And it's a reread every year if you can. It's a big, thick one. I love biographies. I'm in the middle of Robert Kennedy's biography by Chris Matthews right now. So I love reading books about leaders, about political leadership. John Lewis's autobiography is also an incredible uh, book that every American should read about the civil rights movement and, and that time period in our world. So mm. those would be some of my, my favorites. I bound between really silly spy novels that always try to have meaning to some extent and then, uh, you know, sort of some topical thrillers, but I always have a biography or two open as well. So it's a, high, <laughs> it's a big stack of books on my bedstand. JW, what one thing do you do consistently that yields the greatest impact in your personal or professional life? The key word here is consistently. What helps you show up? Well, I definitely think about the future. You know, the, the word that people describe Nikola Tesla was a futurist. And so it's a great title. I mean, I, I really do think about where we're going. I love, you know, thinking about what the world looks like in 10 and 20 and 30 and 50 years love the Star Wars and the Star Trek and all that. And I just, I envision that world in my mind and clean energy is the only way we're getting there. And if we don't solve this issue and make it less political and more about innovation and opportunity, then I think we've really missed the opportunity. So I do think about the future consistently and constantly. When you reach age 50, you start thinking about the world without you, that you have to look at the world through your kid's eyes as you do probably. And it that can be a challenge, right? You, you have a big ego, you want to live big, but there's an end date for all of us. And mine is now a little closer than I'd like to admit, but I'm going to do a lot of big things between now and then. And, and it's all for building that, you know, really positive future for the world. And I think it's all based on hundred percent, you know, renewable energy. If we can do that, I think we're going to have a great, clean, innovative future. Fantastic. As we wrap up, I'd love to know if folks wanted to reach out and find you, how can they engage? Twitter, LinkedIn, is there any particular way? I'm a voracious LinkedIn guy. Okay. Email, you know, I'm old school, so email 
is great. JW.postal, P-O-S-T-A-L at nicolapower.com. And love for you to check us out, what we're doing, what we're up to. And we're always looking for talent and excited to help partners and helpers. Fantastic. I was going to say, if you had one ask of the Suncast audience, how can we help? Is there anything we can support? Well, we're looking for projects, right? We want to put projects in the ground that we can start to prove out our, I mean, I've got a great solar resume. Ben's got a great resume, but we, you know, we're a new company. So building that resume under the Nicola brand is the next challenge for us. And we're very close and we're excited about the progress, but we need projects. So we're looking to partner with people, looking to develop projects and bring our storage expertise and our solar expertise to the market. But obviously domestic stuff in California, Hawaii, Colorado, the West, and then Massachusetts and New York and Maryland are taking off on the East Coast and and Florida is starting to take off. Very cool. Well, JW, it's been a fantastic time. I really enjoy this conversation, but as all things, even the good things have to come to an end. Let's end today with a bold prediction. What one thing do you see happening in the market that maybe nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? I think the transition at the federal government to a a mission of 100% renewable energy is a little closer than we think every day by watching the news. So even the FERC commissioner's action, the bipartisan nature of storage, I think we're going to see over the next six to eight years, a really dramatic change. And it's happening at the state level and the city level, but it's going to happen at the federal level as well. And we're going to come out of this sort of slightly dark period for renewables at the federal level. And it's going to be a big, bold future. That's pretty exciting. 100% renewable energy. Very, very interesting. 100% renewable energy targets and bipartisanship in the next eight years. That is a bold prediction indeed. And if we get to that, we'll certainly be talking about it here on Suncast. JW, we'll have you back sometime to talk a bit more about how Nicola is progressing and maybe to dive deep on your technology for storage. But in the meantime, wish you well and thank you for joining Suncast. All right. Thank you so much for having us. Appreciate it. So I had taken some of the leftover monies from the Axio sale and had started placing some investments. One actually in, in Paul Granis' company with Helioscope. They were raising their very first round of outside capital. And I just you know looked at the business and SaaS model and, and all that. And I said, okay, this is really interesting. What you're, what you're building is interesting. At the time, there weren't really no good online cloud-based solar design tools. Even just to use PV Syst, you had to be fairly technically competent. Thanks for checking out this episode, Solar Warriors. If you liked this interview, then you are going to like next week's Serial Entrepreneur as I sit down with one of the industry's young success stories, Mr. Kyle Cherick. Hope to see you then. Hey, Tribe, while I still have your attention, I'd like to say thank you again. The fact that you're still listening means you really enjoy the work that we're bringing to life. If that's true, won't you consider becoming a member of the Suncast Energy Tribe? There are two ways you can do that, and they're both outlined on the website at mysuncast.com forward slash member, as well as in episode 86 of Suncast, in case you didn't yet have a chance to listen. A special shout out to Energy Tribe members Scott Muller and Natalia Flores, who have been constant supporters and are true solar warriors. You can join them at mysuncast.com forward slash member. And I look forward to formally welcoming you into the tribe as well, my friend. And thanks again for showing up. It's half the battle.